0: Colleagues, my name is Anthony McKay. I'm the CEO and President of the National Center on Education and the Economy. And welcome to the eighth in our series of Global Ed Talks. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Braw Saxberg. Braw, welcome to our series. You, of course, are the Vice President of Learning Science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. But uh, that's your most recent appointment. Uh, And by the way, this is your most recent book, so I might just mention that, Learning Analytics in Education. Uh, This has been a lifetime, I think though, of involvement in what we might call the learning sciences. Just say a word about your own journey because uh, you might now call yourself more
1: um, a learning what? Uh, I'm really a learning engineer now A learning engineer. Um, Well, and thank you very much for inviting me to uh, join this series. Uh, It's a real pleasure Um, Oddly this all started in the 1970s for me Uh, As a college student, I ended up going down to the jet propulsion laboratories and I was actually a rocket scientist for a summer and then the guy who ran the communications research section asked me back the next summer and said can you come up with some new things that we can do with our communications research uh, capacities? Because we're running out of money in space. They're always running out of money in space. So I called him in the spring of my junior year in college, and I said, I think the most important unsolved coding problem is how the brain stores and codes information. So what I, why don't I come down and see if I can solve it this summer? So he laughed and said, that is a perfect college kid project to come to JPL and solve how the brain stores and codes information. So I got down there in 1978 I think it was. It's complicated, Tony, how the brain stores and codes (laughs) information, but ever since then I just had this bug around that overlap of computer science, information, uh, mathematics, curriculum, expertise, cognitive science, evidence-gathering, all those things. And so I became a research guy uh, doing uh, work on human and machine vision at MIT's Artificial Intelligence Laboratory in the 80s. Um, Then passed a bit of time at McKinsey, where I was trying to learn how to put together people and equipment and ideas and get them to go someplace, because I thought that's how you ran a lab. And I just got hooked on the idea of impact at scale as opposed to impact in a lab. So in the mid-1990s, I jumped into the middle of what was then called the CD-ROM revolution, and ever since then, I've been in a series of assignments where I've been at the intersection of technology, curriculum, assessment, computers, uh, cognitive science. But always since the mid-90s, really thinking about scale, practicality, tens or hundreds of thousands of users or millions, um, and continued forward from there. So I helped start a virtual education company called K-12 Inc., and most recently, before CZI, mm-hmm. I was the chief learning officer of a large worldwide education company, Kaplan Inc. Yes. That had 20 plus different learning organizations inside it. And uh, the CEO, Andy Rosen, really wanted to try to turn that organization into, we didn't use the term then, but really a learning engineering organization. Uh, and, you, and you also brought a medical background. Yes. Um, Because I knew when I was uh, getting ready to start studying how the mind actually works, that the body is a trickster and that various chemicals and processes that occur in one part of the body get reused somewhere else. And so I thought, what is the most intense way that I can understand as much as possible about all of human physiology? Turns out an MD is a pretty good way to do that. So let me
0: ask you this from learning scientist to learning engineer. You have a sense of optimism about our capacity to apply learning
1: science at scale. What is the basis of your optimism? Several things. One is just the accumulation over the last several decades of more and more understanding of how human development works and how learning actually works. That includes even how do we unpack what top performing experts decide and do, which has actually been a bit mysterious But over the last 20 or 30 years, there have been techniques out of cognitive science to help with that. So at one level, there's more science to draw on, which is always helpful when you're thinking about an engineering task. At another level, the use of technology for learning, not to replace teachers in any way, but to augment what teachers and students are doing together, has for the first time created a rich sea of data. Data scientists sometimes call it an exhaust of data, but that seems insulting. Um, There is a rich sea of data about interactions between students and teachers and each other and the systems themselves. It's not complete, but there's a lot more to draw on as you try to understand what is working for students with different kinds of backgrounds and contexts, and particularly what is not, so that you can make changes and and alterations to that. Um, I think the other aspect of this that's exciting too is how much more valuable it is getting every year to become good at changing your own skills. Yes. So it used to be, I mean, really, for most of humanity's existence, you would become an expert somewhere in your late teens, early to mid-20s at something. And then from then on, you would be that expert and you would execute that expertise for your community, for your town, for your state, whatever it is, and then you would retire and you will be an ex whatever it was, right? What's happened now is we can't wait that long to change our expertise. Hmm. That we need to be able to alter what we decide and do every five years, 10 years, maybe even less in some cases, Hmm. which means there is increasing value being placed on becoming good at changing people's attitudes, skills, competencies, uh, across a whole range of domains as well as non-academic things and that means there's more opportunity then to invest in those things. So even corporations are now getting more and more engaged by how to get better decisions made and how to change the skills of the people in the workforce yeah. to make
0: those better decisions. Yes, yeah, as I've heard it described as now the task is learning a living. Yes. The intensity of the learning game Yes, right is uh, incredible. So In a sense, therefore, um, learning science, big data, uh, learning analytics, this is all coming together in a very powerful way. But when you talk about learning, you don't just talk about the learning science. You talk about human development. You talk about motivation. Can you explain how these things come together in the challenge that we're
1: talking about here in terms of learning engineering? Yeah, absolutely. uh, in analyzing anything, humans are masters at taking things apart. Yep. The trick is we often forget to put it back together again. So there is a lot of research, for example, on how to teach math problem solving and what goes wrong with that. Okay, And that's terrific, narrow laboratory studies that people have done. The, and, and that is helpful to have that information. But you have to recognize you cannot pull out a human math processor from a brain, tinker it on the bench to upgrade it, slot it back in with nothing else changed, that's not how it works. So when you are actually trying to help a student master something in math, you have to realize the tasks and activities you're doing are going to engage and change other aspects of the student. Their social and emotional capacities, if you're doing some group exercise on problem solving, will Are they already good enough at group interactions to take advantage of that? Or is that a weakness that's about to cause problems for that student? So their capacities in social and emotional side is important. Their identity is important. If a student comes in saying, I can't do math, they might not even start the activity. Mm -hmm. Another student who's like, I love math, will start directly. your identity uh, situation and indeed does this activity increase your interest in math does it increase your sense that you know i can do math well then that will be a change in your identity as a math using person too so and we have things even physical things there's some interesting research about how um, just getting more sleep can uh, add an extra year of academic performance to sixth graders, there was a randomized controlled trial done on this 15, 20 years ago. Um, And other things like just being hydrated can increase your problem solving capacity. Well, these are not the usual things we think of as academic interventions, right? Let's get that breakfast going. That'll improve our writing later in the day. It's like, what? Uh, You know, who does randomized controlled trials of breakfast sandwiches on writing performance? Not so much. But that's where an engineer comes in. The engineer looks at all the different things that need to take place for a student and then draws on the research against each of those pieces to gain insight into a holistic design that they're going to create to integrate as many of these things as they can into something that is practical, that can be done by the human beings and the technology that's actually there. And then the key thing is to instrument so that they can see how do we do Which parts of this are working the way we expected? Which parts of this are breaking? Because that's a fundamental part of engineering work is you make the best first draft you can from the science and previous experience you got, but then you have to really look for how things are going because you know you're gonna have to problem solve. You're going to have to iterate. And I think that uh, ethos of iteration, we don't do that much of that in the world of learning. That's partly because we haven't had many uh, capacities to do it quickly. But we also don't have that culture of, it's okay for it not to go well the first time. Let's iterate. Let's find out how do we do it better the next time. Um, and that's what we need to do. And that, that, to me, is part of this learning engineering idea that I think it can be so powerful in education. So I get the connection here between learning science and human development science. What is the role of motivation? Oh, so motivation... You can, uh, there's a very good researcher, Richard Clark, who did a scan of a lot of different kinds of literature trying to answer the question of what gets in the way of people uh, starting, persisting, and putting in mental effort? What gets in the way of that? And that, arguably, is motivation. Interestingly, you'll note that liking what you're doing is not in that list. And the reason for that is you will learn if you start, persist, and put in mental effort into a well-designed activity, even if you don't like it. It's actually very similar to a physical exercise program. Yeah. You might hate that weight program, but if you start, persist, and put in effort into that weight program, you are moving those muscle neurons, they are getting fatter and thicker as you go, the muscle cells are changing, and your attitude about it, as long as you are starting, persisting, putting in mental effort, you know what? People will do that weight training just to get the strength, even if they hate that. Others will do it because they love the weight training. Doesn't matter, it still changes their muscles. Same thing is true with neurons, that if you start, persist, and put in mental effort, it will change how your mind works and will create expertise that way. So when he looked at motivation and lots of different kinds of research, cognitive psychology, social psychology, some behavioral economics, a range of these different topics, he found there's a simple kind of four-part model of what seems to go wrong. Um, so one thing that goes wrong is, you don't value what you're doing or how you're doing it. So you're a dancer in an algebra class, why am I here? And for that, you've got to address, what's the link with what you want to do with what this thing is we would like you to learn? That could be through a dance foundation or something else. So that's the exercise that a teacher, a good teacher needs to do to try to lift up the motivation of the student. A second thing that goes wrong, a different dancers, same algebra class, but I've decided I just can't do math. I just can't do it. Well, that's very different than I don't see the point. So it doesn't help to come tell me how important it is for me as a dancer to learn something about dance foundations or whatever. I can't do it. So you got to address that problem differently by actually showing I have mastered things like this in the past through practice and feedback, by maybe having me listen to stories and talk to others who are just like me, who thought I couldn't do it, and they changed, they discovered they could do it, and how did they do it? So that sort of storytelling as a problem-solving technique. The third thing that goes wrong is you blame things in your environment. Mm-hmm. My teacher hates me, or I can't understand this book, or popular among all kinds of professionals too, I don't have time. Mm-hmm. I, it's important, I could do it, but I don't have time. So again, the problem-solving now is around, let's look at your calendar, let's find a place for your study, Let's change teachers. Let's find new materials and and problem solve around that problem so that the student recognizes, oh, I guess I can do something about this. The last part of this four-part framework, which is arguably one of the hardest to deal with, is negative emotional states. If you are angry, scared, depressed, um, it's hard to start persistent put-in mental activities. And it is just as complicated to deal with that as it sounds like, that for some students, it's just a conversation to get something unpacked and to help the student begin to adapt to what's going on. In other cases, it may be all the way out to a need for professional services. What's interesting is this provides a rationale for why in communities with a lot of stresses, professional services are really important because they can unlock motivation. Mm. It's about how do I enable this mind to dig back into these things And so you may need actual therapy and other kinds of uh, techniques that that, that require real investment to actually have happen. So the motivation piece, um, you can kind of take it apart, begin to problem solve around it, then take action on it. And parts of that motivation are tied to development. So your identity that says, I'm no good at math, develops over time and lots of feedback, personal reinforcement, and it's an instantaneous reaction to being in a math class. It requires work, practice and feedback to begin to overcome that. And you can, you can change your identity, part of that development, the set of development things, so that you really can do better. So,
0: So, as a learning engineer, I am really keen to be able to get serious impact uh, with the way in which I go about the design task of those sorts of interventions that will really make a difference. And clearly what will make a difference is moving from working memory
1: to long-term memory. Explain to me why that is so significant. Sure. When you look at people who are expert at anything, physical activities, mental activities, even uh, great speakers and and very empathetic people, what you find is they have skills that have become so internalized that they are almost automatic. They are essentially in what's called long-term memory. They can be be accessed instantaneously. They can happen very fast. Many things can happen in parallel. And those long-term memory kinds of attitudes and skills then support working memory, which is the narrow, verbal, flexible problem-solving part of our minds that handles the toughest tasks. Mm -hmm. So you always have this uh, collaboration between long-term memory and working memory as you tackle things. because. As an expert, you will recognize features of a situation very quickly that a novice might not even recognize at all. Like, I'm a very bad chess player. I'm not even being polite. I mean, I'm like, what's a queen? Okay, so I'm really bad, okay. (laughs) And you know, if you have an expert looking over my shoulder, you know, the guy or gal is like, didn't you even see your queen was at risk? And I'm like, which is the queen? What do you mean queen at risk? I I don't see it. Yes. But the expert, it's like instantaneous. Oh my gosh, this yes. queen is at risk. And that requires real work to get there. There are some problems with long-term memory, like the identity issues. If you get things put in there about your own identity as a person, I, I'm not a scientist, I can't do that, or I'm not a writer or whatever, that's a problem that has to get worked on through lots of practice and feedback to get that pulled out. What you'd like to do is in an educational system, from the beginning, try to design not just the academic decisions and tasks, but simultaneously those identities and social and emotional capacities, that whole development set of uh, skills together, so that you end up with very positive capacities and attitudes about capacities throughout your life. Okay. Let me ask you this.
0: There's a real challenge here. This is applying learning science at scale. Let us argue that in fact, the advances in our understanding about learning together are significant and they clearly are. And let us argue that we actually understand the importance of human development and motivation as you bring all of this work together. And let's argue that in fact, we've got now learning engineers that can really support us. We're talking about a mass teaching profession. So what is your sense of the extent of the challenge here? As you think about applying learning science at scale, that is across an entire profession, and will we be helped by AI
1: and related technologies? Yeah. It is a challenge, there's no question. Um, anytime you have you know, millions of professionals who have trained in one way to do things yes. and have repeatedly practiced that in their work, yes. and now you discover you would really benefit by doing things in a new or different way, it's a challenge at scale, not just uh, based on the science, but even the organization of how you will, you know, do this for a, you know a million professionals. But there are several things about this that I think give hope, not necessarily to fix it in eighteen months, but to think about it over a decade or more. So one is begin with schools of education, begin encouraging them to weave the science of learning and development right into the front end yes. of how teachers. Uh, practice, how they look at individual students, how they understand what they're being taught to decide and do, just like a physician is taught fundamentals of physiology and um, biochemistry and molecular biology in the course of being trained to do treatment tasks, you'd love to have that same thing happening with teachers. Similarly, then, teachers in the field begin to give them not just training experiences that are well-designed for them, too, we'll come back to that in a second, but actually motivation to help them understand doing this differently can actually really help your students. And that's a motivation challenge for the teachers, many of whom might have thought, there's no way anything new can help. You know, I have subsets of students who don't do well, but that's just the way it is. So you would love to be able to share with them stories and examples of teachers just like them who change their practice for students like yours and got significant benefits that lasted for years along the way, that helps to start to wake up the idea of I really might be able to do something here. This is there's new, there's new information I didn't know about that suggests I can make a difference to this. So we've got to get that part of it, the motivation part, working out too. Yes. And then it has to cascade upwards, if you will, where we need our decision makers to know more about learning science for two reasons. One is, so that they can help do purchasing and and bring in new techniques that actually have evidence that it connects to learning science and developmental science. But the other reason is so that they can make space for teachers to learn the new behaviors and decisions that they have to learn. Far too often now professional development assumes teachers are tape recorders. I gave them two weeks in the summer, how come in February this isn't still happening? as opposed to recognizing learning science applies and development science applies to teachers too. We need practice and feedback environments. We need repeated coaching. We need to think about the motivation of teachers as they work their way through what can be a challenging behavior change. And we need to work together in a community to actually uh, begin to do this. That requires time. So leaders have to accept this will take time and it won't be perfect and and to measure and to see how are we doing, how are we making this all work. So there's a real challenge here, but I think there's enough information to begin to pull it up. Absolutely, and will we be helped by technology? Yes, in several ways. One is, as I said at the beginning, technology is beginning to provide more evidence that we can draw on to help us see, are things happening the way we intended to have them happen or change? So that's a piece of this. Another piece of this is using technology to do what it can do with students, so that we can begin freeing teachers and principals up to do what they're uniquely best suited to doing, right? So how do humans add value to each other in any working environment? Well, increasingly, the value humans bring has to do with things like communications with each other, uh, understanding your situation, uh, bringing meaning to you for the hard things that you are about to undertake, And also the creative combining of different uh, domains and the problem solving around that. Well what we need to do is potentially use technology to free up teachers and also to help train teachers to begin doing that kind of work with their students. Teachers have always been the teachers of last resort for students. They are the final learning solution for kids of all kinds and if we can give them more time to be able to do that kind of work with the kids who have the deepest challenges, that will be for the better for those kids. I would argue for the teachers too, because it makes this profession into a really engaging and challenging problem-solving profession. And then you have the technology that helps as it can to deliver other things in a way that is uh, reliable, repeatable, affordable, and so forth. So I actually think technology has a strong role to play, but not a role to replace teachers it's to unlock teachers. Bro, uh, I would love to
0: move now into part two, but unfortunately, uh, that time is not available to us. (laughs) But I might ask you to uh, give me an assurance that you'd be happy to return at a later time and to carry this conversation on to another level. This has been a superb way, I think, for us to address the promise, as you say, of the application of learning science at scale. Thank you very much indeed.